0: Hello, you're listening to Movie Maker. I'm Eric Stoyer, and today on the show we've got Tara Mealy. She's the writer and director of a new movie called Wander Darkly. It's uh, sort of a metaphysical drama, love story. It's heavy. A few years ago, Mealy was in a a bad car crash with her husband, and luckily they both survived, but it was a a very traumatic experience, and those events inspired the screenplay for Wander Darkly. In the movie, Sienna Miller plays Adrian and Diego Luna plays Mateo. They are a couple, they live in LA, they've got a new baby, and they've also got a relationship that's a bit on the rocks. Like Mealy, Adrian and Mateo are in a traumatic car accident, and what unfolds from there is a story that ruminates on things like the nature of love and memory and reality and dream life and possible futures it's deep it's deep I, I did enjoy it it's available to uh to watch now on uh, demand so any of the usual outlets you you get movies from and um i enjoyed talking to, to tara mealy she was great send us feedback about the show and any ideas you have for guests people we should have on and talk to i'm at eric at moviemaker.com and without further ado here's my conversation with tara mealy Uh, I saw you went to
1: UC Santa Barbara. Same years I went there.
2: You did? What was your? I
1: I was a film major to start with, and then I uh, and then I ended up an English major. Though, were you a film major there?
2: I was theater and film. I came came to film pretty late. Like I didn't start doing film until the end of my junior year, and then really like went hardcore through the end. Nice. nice. Lived in the you know splice tape whole like never changing my socks, like sneaking into the flatbed. Like we just lived there. It was like the best of times, you know?
1: It was a cool place if you found your people, especially like if you find the creative people in a place like, that. I mean, not that there aren't all kinds of great people at UC Santa Barbara, but the, you know, you come in and if you're a certain kind of kid, it seems a little bit monolithic. And then if you find the people that are kind of in the same stuff you are, it's an amazing place to be.
2: I agree. You have to find the freaky artist people because UCS yeah. is not all that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, can you tell me a little bit about what the um, the plan was originally for this film? I know it premiered at uh, Sundance. So, what was what was maybe a different way to ask that is how has COVID changed the way that this film ended up rolling out?
2: Yeah, so definitely after Sundance, you know, we had been talking to distributors about doing a nice proper proper theatrical release and and uh, you know a, a bigger I don't even want to say a bigger rollout, but a, a theatrical rollout. Um, and then we sort of all waited for a minute. It was like, well, let's just wait until this passes. We'll wait and see what happens. Um, and then there were definitely some uh, distributors that talked to us about continuing that strategy. Let's wait until theaters are back and then we'll do this you know, properly. But it really became clear to us, I think the producers and myself that um, the movie felt like it was ready uh, and it felt sort of essential for the time and um, that it might be this kind of beautiful gift for people to be able to watch it at home together in this moment and have this catharsis uh, with this movie in this time. So um, certainly, like we love Lionsgate it's done an incredible job. I feel truly partnered with them in a, in a creative way. Um, and, I, and I think that they're really going to get it to the right people and to lots of people. And that's a great thing.
1: Very cool. Yeah. You said that it may be a good film for right now. It has a very wonderful quality of feeling both quite realistic. And then of course the perspectives are shifting and then there's this very surreal quality to it too. So it it did resonate with me when I watched it on that level. It feels like just right now, I mean, it feels like our lives all the time, but right now, especially, it feels like you're constantly there in the moment and then wondering, am I actually here? Is this actually me? Am I actually in this life? You know, those sorts of questions. Um, Anyway, was that look, the combination of the very realistic and the very relatable, um, and then, and then the, the, surreal, uh, the surrealness of it, was, was that hard to achieve?
2: Um, yeah, we just had to keep sort of saying it again and again. Um, the marching orders for us on set and even through editorial uh, was, I was there that day. It, it felt magic. It felt so uh, poetic or lyrical or it was strange or otherworldly, but it was real. It actually happened. I saw it. I was there that day. So um we we've had, we spent a lot of time like undoing, you know what I mean? Like trying to make things feel less produced and more organic and more real. And like uh for Carolina Costa, the DP was allowed very few lights, you know. I wanted everything to feel as raw as possible. So yeah, and it was just a lot of conversations. I think, you know, key crew wants to show off. They all want to show you what they can do and this cool sound, this cool effect, this cool thing. And it was always a a pulling back, always, always a pulling back.
1: There's this this great line, it's a simple line, but it's a really great line. And Mateo says to Adrian, um, stop trying to find meaning in something meaningless and random. Does that feel like an overarching theme of the movie maybe to you?
2: Um, you know, certainly um, I I think I, after the car crash that my husband and I survived was desperately trying to find meaning and it felt so random and it felt so awful. Um, and I think as as humans, like story is our, deepest faith, right? Story is how we make sense of the world. Um, and, I, and I do think at the end of the day, like they have to meet in the middle in this place, right? Like it's, it's about what meaning do you make from it? And that it's up to you. Like that, that it's not like you can hunt through it and find facts and say, that definitely means that. It has to be what you believe it meant and whatever it meant, that is then the truth for you. So I think that's sort of the journey of this couple.
1: Could you talk more about the car crash and, and how it inspired the, the story?
2: Yeah. So um, my husband and I, it was about seven years ago and we were headed back from a date night and probably bickering about something. We, you know, we had two little kids. We have two little kids. They were very young at the time and um, we got hit head on uh, and I blacked out. And then um, in the aftermath, I was quite concussed. And I did have that moment where Adrian's on the couch and calling to the baby and the baby ignores her because she's a baby. But just for a second, it felt so true to me that I had died in that moment, that I was just experiencing what came after. It was such a profound and real feeling. Um, and then months later, we were fine. You know, we were absolutely recovered, and I was so grateful that we were able to live these delicate, messy little lives. But it, it sort of—it really stuck with me that feeling of um, the, the fragility, um, and then how how certain I was of that feeling just for that moment. And so I was really interested in the way that our brains protect us in a concussion. Um, I was really interested also in like, I'd lost a few people in my life in this time. I was interested in the psychosis of grief and how we allow for that space and how those two things sort of have similarities. And I also had wanted to write a love story for a long time about like the the longevity of a relationship Um, and um, sort of that became a third box to parallel with because the loss of love can often feel like a death. And uh, I wanted to sort of see how all of those things sort of intermingled together
1: yeah, I'm, I'm a parent as well, and uh, becoming a parent uh, definitely changes your view of life's fragility and, and especially for me, how quickly time moves and, and you know life more than ever kind of feels like this flat timeline where you can almost place yourself in any moment of it and it would feel just as real as the right now. Um, how much do you feel like that the characters being parents and the movie affects their um, you know th- their relationship to the to the world that they're living in in the, in the, in the movie?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think in every way, you know, um, certainly I haven't seen parenthood represented outside of like, maybe like in the comedy genre where it's like, don't get me wrong. I love parenthood, right? Like the chaos of trying to be a parent. It's so beautifully depicted, but I feel like in most movies, it's like those early days are sort of backlit and joyful and and so romanticized. Um, And I think having young children can be harrowing and isolating, by the way, it's almost like quarantine, like the world changes, you know, you're, you're transformed. You don't know if you're ever going to get back out in the world again. Um, you're sort of isolated from everything familiar to you. So, so I was very interested in, um, in looking at a relationship and how it was affected by something that both people loved so much. And, and I think also when our kids were little, we knew a lot of people who were breaking up. And I think at some point we did say, we just have to make it through the first year. Um, and that was not an easy thing, you know, and a lot of people can't, can't do it. So I was, yeah, I was definitely interested in how parenthood shifts your relationship 180 degrees, you know,
1: this, for, for people who know how these things are done, I'm sure this is a very pedestrian question, but I thought that the some of the establishing shots, this, the overhead shots of, of LA and the kind of grid like structure of the freeways and that, cause they are really, uh, really neat. I just wanted to know how you, how you got those shots.
2: Oh, thank you. So, um, that we, I hate to admit this like publicly, but it's all stock. Um, yeah, they had changed the rules about using drones over LA and all that stuff was in my original lookbook. And it was always a question of how we were actually going to get it. Um, our editor or the second editor who came in, Alex O'Flynn, um, found these gorgeous shots and we actually even went out and tried to see if we could sort of replace them on the ground with things that would be equally, Sort of grid-like and linear and sort of give you that boxed in structural feeling but they were gorgeous you know and so i felt very lucky that we had access to them and that we but i, I wish i could claim deeper credit for them it's not a not a great answer
1: well pulling in good stuff is is also a talent yeah. and an art um another very beautiful and memorable scene is 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 at the beach i think i believe it was supposed to take place in mexico where, where was that
2: uh, that was down in Rancho Palos Verdes, uh, not far from the Trump golf course, <laughs> but not on the Trump golf course. Um, yeah, there's this little beautiful spot. My family actually has gone there a whole bunch of times to do, um, you know, uh, what is it like uh, when the tides are out, uh, tide pooling. Mm-hmm. And so I was familiar with that spot and dragged everybody down there and said, this is where we could do Mexico. This gorgeous cliff is right here. Um, and we weren't far from there when we found the dolphins either. going
1: to I was going to our- ask if you knew there were dolphins there.
2: Um, yeah, you know, so Monica Levinson, one of our producers, when I, uh, she works for the financier. And I, when I first pitched the movie, we thought maybe we would have to cut the dolphins and she goes, Oh, I know a guy who can get dolphins, captain Dave. He's like, <laughs> he knew it, Monica, you have to produce the movie. Um, so she and captain Dave would be out on this, like, you know, search boat looking for dolphins. We'd have our big crew boat, our camera boat, our picture boat we'd be working and then Monica radio and be like, we got the dolphins come to this longitude and longitude. And we would all just drop what we were doing and like race to go find the dolphins and then ride with the dolphins. And it was pretty great. I won't lie. And we did it three different times, three separate days. We went out and found dolphins and every single day at like two in the morning, when we all had our call, everybody'd be like, there's no way we're getting dolphins. Like who thinks, you know, and I'd be like to the boom operator, like, don't tell me I'm not getting dolphins. We're going to see dolphins. You just wait. So First of
1: all, I know Captain Dave. Yeah,
2: Captain Dave, man. Don't underestimate.
1: We're not screwing around here. This is real deal stuff. Um, How are you staying creative in COVID?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. It goes in in big waves. Um, I have written a pilot and I have um, broken a feature that I'm going to write. So um, I do feel like I've been as productive as possible. Um, But it definitely like... I feel like every like with everybody, you know, you wake up some days and you're like, we're actually doing great. Like we're actually great. We're doing great. We're great. We're great. Um, and something about writing it, there is a nice escape sometimes, like to dive into another world that doesn't have masks and doesn't have to deal with all this stuff. Um, and then other days, you know, I think especially early on in quarantine, like after George Floyd's murder, I don't think I wrote for like a month. I just couldn't, I I the the world was needed other things. Uh so I was busy taking my kids out to protests and donating and and trying to trying to change the world in other ways. But um, yeah, for the most part, I think I'm doing okay. (laughs) Uh, It's a, it's definitely a roller coaster. though. you know, I think with everyone else, good days and bad days.
1: And then I mean, practically, how are you making space for that? It's it seems like that's a challenge for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, so our kids are right now in the backyard with like a Zoom pod that we set up that I think is probably frowned upon in some places, but I don't know how, I mean, I find it a really privileged idea that somebody could be home with their kids and educating them all day long. I mean, we have a two-income family. My husband's a shooter. He's been shooting, so we need that help. Um, but we have, you know, a teacher in a mask and the kids on their Zoom classes and a few other kids from the neighborhood that come and they all stay in their masks. That has been uh, wonderful for them. They were starting to get feral, so they need that interaction. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I think. I think I go into a deep state of denial where I'm like, "You have to write." You you know, it's like, like I keep saying, I like Hamilton did. I'm like, I wrote my way out. Like I just, you have to. You're writing for your life at some point. It's like the only way that we're gonna continue our benefits. It's the only way that we're not gonna lose our house. You know. So, and at some point, there's not really a choice. I think.
1: Uh, Wander Darkly is a very evocative title. I really, it's very beautiful. Is it? Is it a reference to something? Did it, did it come from somewhere?
2: It is, yeah. Um, somewhere in the development process, I had read a poem by uh, Lord Byron, who mm. strangely enough is the great ancestor of the production designer who worked on the film, Katie Byron, which is insane because mm. I just found that connection really profound. Um, but he, in his time, uh, scientists were predicting that the sun would extinguish And he wrote this poem about it. Everyone was quite up in arms about this concept. And it's this devastating poem about all the light in the world going out. And one of the lines says, the stars did wander darkling, darkling being the opposite of twinkling. And so, yeah, but I felt Wander Darkling was a little complicated to understand the title. So we we adjusted to Wander Darkly, but it felt so like this horrible thing, this devastating thing, but told in such a beautiful way was really something that I was trying to do. And um, it felt very Adrian to me.
1: A very relatable uh, line in the movie also is Adrian would like her funeral not to only be fun but to have Missy Elliott play that is that uh, something you would imagine for yourself
2: yes definitely I mean yeah so much of so much of Adrian is just like me sort of coming out but um yeah we do a lot of dance parties at my house Missy Elliott is like you know a top play track you know we play a lot of WTF and uh, try to make my kids not hear the words <laughs> they shouldn't be hearing in some of her music but i'm a sucker for if art is good or if a joke is good i i kind of allow a lot so yeah i i do i am a big fan i'll say that much
1: i I think that there's a feeling of of, of gratitude that you're that you're conveying in the film and 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 i wonder is is that something that you've found that you have easy access to i i personally sometimes find that it's you know something that people talk a lot about is gratitude and it's um Something obviously very attractive and 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 something that i'm I, everyone I know is trying to get towards more of, but it's it's hard to access sometimes
2: um yeah, no, it's not like I made this movie because, oh, I have this thing that I'm able to do, and I just want other people to, to be able to do what i do it's It's more like a reminder for myself that this is this is the place that you want to be and that this is like the root of things this is like the truth right so I do a lot of meditating right now uh the Deepak and Oprah are doing some great, you know, meditations on awareness and gratitude and connectivity. Um, but I, I keep telling the story. So the day after our premiere at Sundance, um, you know, we had like a mixed review or something and I did this Q&A and I felt so exposed and vulnerable and it really not enjoying the experience at all. I was like, this is miserable. <laughs> I do not like this. And I came out of this Q&A and heard that uh, Kobe Bryant and his daughter had passed away. And I just was like, it's just like, such another crash down into like, this is why you made this movie because we were all in this fragile, delicate little boat of life. And none of this actually matters. Like call your kids, hug your kids, kiss your husband, like just recenter on like what actually matters here. You know, like none of this is gonna save you. Um, and so, so it was like a good reminder of why I made the film honestly, because I think I need that reminder as much as anybody, constantly.
1: When did you start writing the film?
2: Uh, in 2015. So I, ha- I had to like look back on my documents to like, you know, unearth when this all happened. But um, uh, it was about a year after the accident and um, my husband got a job shooting out in Georgia and the kids and I came for like five weeks of the show that he was on. And I hired a nanny from eight to noon every day and the kids would be in the pool and I'd be in the clubhouse of this condo we were staying at, which was, by the way, kind of amazing. We don't have a pool in LA. You know, the kids were thrilled. Um, But yeah, I wrote it over four weeks. So like I, I, I developed it for much longer time, but then once I got to script, I wrote really, really quickly.
1: And are you someone who works or can work on a bunch of projects all at once? Or do you, do you really need to devote yourself to one thing?
2: You know, I think I was working on something else at that time in the afternoons, like I was kind of noodling on something, but um, I, I do prefer to sort of have my head in one space because I find like if, if I'm doing too many things, then in the downtime, my brain doesn't know where to mull. So if I'm doing one thing, then when I'm in the shower, there's only one thing to sort of mull and to have ideas about. If I'm doing too many things, it's like there's, there's just not like a, a good silent space for those ideas to bubble up.
1: There was this news yesterday about uh, Warner releasing all of its uh, 2021 films on HBO Max. Um, how do you feel about that? Is it, and, and is uh, the, the theater experience for you as a filmmaker a huge part of the film watching experience? Or is it, is it something that you can't imagine just not being around in the current form?
2: you know, it's really hard. I I absolutely adore going to the theater. I love the movies as a, I mean, since I was a kid, right? Like it was such an event thing for my family to do all together. Um, I have such wonderful memories of it. And I think film is so transformative that when you walk into a film, it, when when you leave a film, it's leaving you changed to go back into the world where, you know, maybe when you leave television, it's leaving you to want to come back next week, you know? And I hope that if film does make this transition to where a lot more people are experiencing at home and I see we've already sort of, you know, obviously begun that right now, but even before COVID had started that, I hope that we still maintain like a sense of attention to the film and, you know, not just being on our phones while we're watching and and sort of half watching and, and you know, because it doesn't end with a hook to bring you back that we, we still take the time to talk about it because the best things about leaving a film is with you're with people and you go to dinner and you talk all about it, you know? Um, so I hope we sort of sh- find a way to maintain that experience. Um, I also think this might be a great time for theaters to reconsider their price structure and to think about, you know, working people and who can afford to go to a movie that, you know, as a kid, we had like a dollar theater nearby. So you were going to see like fifth run movies or whatever it was and being able to see double features in the afternoon. I just think, especially being in LA, it's so expensive for a family to go see a film, it's, uh, it's just prohibitive. So I hope that this opens up a whole can of worms and people have to rethink the whole thing, you know.
1: Uh, my last question, uh, speaking of films, have you seen anything great in the last nine, nine-ish months or whatever it's been?
2: Anything great film-wise, you know, we've been binging so much TV, but I, I did see uh, Wolfwalk, Wolfwalkers which was gorgeous and wonderful. I saw that through AFI Fest and I was blown away. I think those guys are so talented and uh, I will follow them forever and just watch whatever they see or whatever they make. Um, and I saw a 40 year old version which I thought was fantastic um, and so well done. And, and we loved King of Staten Island which uh, was earlier on in the process. It's thought it was so uh, beautiful and funny. Um, Oh my gosh, I'm sure there's more. Those, those are pretty good. It's a pretty good list. Yeah, we've been watching a lot, I'll say. We've been watching a lot, So, which we don't always have time to do. So uh, not a bad side effect.
1: Tara Mealy, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed talking to you.
2: You too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye, Eric.
0: All right. Thanks for listening to Movie Maker. Check us out at MovieMaker.com where we post stories every day about movies and movie making and movie makers the print magazine movie maker magazine is uh, the best resource for folks who are interested in learning about the art and craft of movie making you can follow us on social media at movie maker mag and you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and say a nice thing or two about us while you're there would you and uh, we'll be back soon with another episode and we hope you will be there to join us please come back and, and visit until then take care of yourselves